Hello, I'm Donna. And I'm Kevin, and we go to Macquarie Park Church, and it's our privilege to bring you the Bible readings for today. The first reading is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. So let us read the word of God together. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man's. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, up to chapter 7, verse 5. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he, uni he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sex sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. 
do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, you are full of goodness and kindness and grace and compassion. And we come, come today longing to hear your voice, to hear your words of, of truth, your words of comfort. And we ask, Lord, that as you speak to us by your spirit and through your word, uh, that you would implant in us a deep truths that would shape our lives. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Tim Keller says, there's never been a culture in the entire history that is so obsessed with sex as our culture is today. And I think he's right. Uh, We live in this sex-crazed, confused, chaotic culture. Sex is everywhere, from innuendos to images. Uh, Sex sells everything from clothes to cars and from mortgages to mouthwash. Uh, The average 10-year-old in the course of a year watching television, we'll see 9,000 scenes which imply sex. Pornography is still the most watched thing online. We are piping sexual images into our homes. Uh, Sex before marriage is now just the norm. Uh, 85% of couples will cohabit before marriage. No big deal. Uh, 29% of couples will have sex on their first date. 65% of teenagers will have sex before they leave high school. And even on Christian dating sites, people who claim to love Jesus, 63% say they would have sex before marriage. This is the sex-crazed culture that we live in. But there's confusion. We've elevated sex to be the, the epitome of human experience. So if you're not sexually active, somehow you're seen as inferior or incomplete. And yet it is chaotic. There is widespread promiscuity. There's sexual addictions. There's confusion over gender and sexual orientation. There's there's everyday abortions. There's abuse. And there's so much hurt and pain and shame and heartache. We're confused by sex. We need to talk about sex. Sex is a good gift from God. Can I say that I am very aware that this topic could cause some pain for for many people, many of us. Now, most of us have some sexual failures in the past or in the present. So as you listen today, I just want to urge you to remember that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you find your forgiveness and your healing and your hope. Let's start with intention. Intention. Sex was God's good idea. And so God created sex. Sex is a good thing. It's not dirty. It's not bad. God created us as sexual beings. So Genesis 1 verse 27 again. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So we are created not just as rational beings, but as relational beings created with this this, this intimate, 
deep relational connectivity, a bit like the Trinity. But male and female, he created them. So God created us with these these incredible, intricate bodies. He created every part of us, from our eyes to our ears to our nose to our hands to our feet to our arms and to our legs, and yes, to our genitalia. Male and female, he created them with a, a penis or a vagina. So within weeks of your conception, your body produces these hormones, testosterone or estrogen, that stimulate the development of your sexual organs. It's incredible. And then God created us with this this capacity for pleasure, sexual pleasure. So the sexual awakening did not happen in the 1960s. It happened way back at creation. Do you remember how God said it wasn't good for the man to be alone and the animals didn't cut it? And so God put Adam to sleep. And when Adam woke up from that first surgery, he spotted another human being, a woman. And he says, wow, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And then God gave a command, the very first command in the whole of the Bible. God says, be fruitful and increase in number. Be fruitful and increase in number. And there's only one way to do that. That's through having sex. So Adam and Eve were making love way before sin entered the world. It's this beautiful picture of God's good gift of sex within a lifelong committed relationship we call marriage. It is good. And then Genesis 3 happens. And we have disobedience and we have deception and a declaration of independence from God. And we think we know better from God. So when sin entered the world, everything is distorted, including sex. And so we take a good thing like sex and we turn it into an idol. We take something extraordinary and we use it for evil. And we take something healthy and we use it to cause harm. Let's talk about sex. 2,000 years ago, there was a city called Corinth. And a bit like Sydney, it's a sex-crazed city. They even had a temple selling sex. And this letter to the Corinthians turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the Christians there are saying in verse 12, I have the right to do anything with my body. That was their slogan. I'm I'm under grace. It's okay. God loves me. I'm under grace. I'm free to do whatever I want, whatever makes me happy. And Paul says, no, verse 12, not everything is beneficial. So some sexual behavior is not going to help you to love God and love other people. He's saying, please don't use your freedom to cause harm to other people. Do you think about that person on the screen as you indulge in pornography? That is someone else's son or daughter, husband or wife. Do you think about that harm you're causing someone else as you flip between one sexual partner to another? Not everything is beneficial, says Paul. But they come back, I have the right to do everything, verse 12. And Paul says, yes, sure, but I won't be mastered by anything. He's saying the problem with sex is that sex can be addictive and it can shape, totally shape your thoughts and your actions. And he goes on, verse 13, that they they say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. They say it's just sex. It's just natural. You know, the food and the stomach were made for each other. The body and sex were made for each other. So if you feel hungry, you you have some food. If you feel horny, you have some sex. 
It's just sex, they're saying. What's the big deal? And God says, no, it's not just sex. Church, church, the, the, the problem is our world has a very low view of sex. It's just another bodily function. Nothing special, nothing worth protecting, nothing serious. It's just fun. But God has a very high view of sex. God says sex is wonderful and beautiful and it touches us at a really deep level. It's not just about our bodies, it's about our souls. That's the problem. The stomach was made for food, but, verse 13, the body wasn't made for immorality, it was made for the Lord. So what we do with our bodies really matters. Don't you know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ himself? He's saying, please don't think that what you do with your bodies will have no impact on you, on other people, on your relationship with Christ. You've got to understand this, church, that God has a very high view of sex because sex is this this one flesh union, to quote Genesis 2. Sex unites two people in this profound, deep, complex, mystical bond. The word used in verse 16 is the word unite. It's the same in Genesis 2, to unite or to join, and it literally means the word glue. It's like when you take two pieces of wood and you you find the strongest possible woodworker's glue and you bind them together, and that bond is so strong, if you try and tear those two pieces of wood apart, it damages both parts. It's like sticky tape. If you use it once and then rip it off and use it again and rip it off and use it again and rip it off, it, it, it's not fit for its purpose. The Apostle Paul is an extraordinary psychologist. He's saying it's not just sex. Because sex isn't just physical. It's deeply powerful. It unites people, body, mind, emotion and soul. C.S. Lewis says every time a man and woman enter into sexual relationships, some kind of spiritual bond is established. It's Genesis 4. Adam knew his wife, Eve. That word know is the same word of God knowing us. It's it's intimate. It's complete knowledge. So our, our culture talks about safe sex. But what if, what if what is safe physically is actually damaging to your soul? What if the thing that we call casual sex is actually causing deep heartache? What if the Bible is right? What if there's something mysterious and deep and more than just physical? Verse 19, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? It's not about your feelings or your desires or your wants. It's about honoring God with our bodies. So today I want to look at two things. Beauty and brokenness. Intimacy, the, the, the beauty of sexual intimacy. God designed sex to be enjoyed. But enjoyed within that context of one man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. It's called marriage. That's the right place for sex. And I know that statement is is controversial, it's under question, it's under attack, it's it's mocked, it's ridiculed, and words like monogamy, fidelity, chastity, celibacy, they're not in our vocab anymore. But this is God's good design. And friends, when we question that, we're basically saying, God, you're not a good father, and you're not all wise, and you don't know best, and you're not all loving. 
No, no, our God is good and kind and loving, and he says sex is beautiful and wonderful, this expression of intimacy and vulnerability, but within marriage, not within a dating relationship, not within a committed lifetime relationship, not within an engaging relationship, but within marriage. So Genesis 2 is the marriage mandate. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united, same word again, is joined, is glued to his wife. And they become one flesh, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually, they are one. And Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. I love that verse, naked and unashamed. Husband and wife stand before each other and with this openness, this honesty, this safety, this vulnerability, Nothing hidden from God, nothing hidden from each other. No masks, no insecurities, no guilt, no fears. This feeling of being safe and satisfied and wanted and cared for. That's the beauty of sexual intimacy within marriage. There was a recent study by Cornell University, a secular study on sex. Here's what they found. It's fascinating. They found that sex before marriage negatively impacts sex within marriage. The more sexual partners you've had before marriage, the lower your sexual satisfaction will be in marriage. The longer the couple waits before being sexually active, the better their sex lives will be. And waiting to your wedding night appears to be the best foundation for the best sex lives. To quote, the unheralded, seldom-discussed world of marital sex is actually the one that satisfies people the most. So our best advice is to abstain before marriage. Isn't that extraordinary? That is secular research. So what, what's the purpose of sex within a marriage? There, there are three purposes. Love, pleasure, and procreation. Love. That expression of adoration and selfless love. Read Song of Songs. It's one of the most erotic and elegant love poems. And it's not just about Christ and the church. It's about a man and his wife. Song of Songs 7. How beautiful you are. How pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. Or 1 Corinthians 7, we've just read it. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. That that word duty is not a negative word. It's a positive word. It's saying that sex is this beautiful part of marriage. It doesn't make you one flesh, but it's that expression of that one flesh reality. It's that place of connectivity and communication and intimacy and adoration. I love what Philip Yancey says. Marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us daily by the entertainment media. Few of us live with oversex supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, body odour and unruly hair, who menstruate, who experience occasional impotence, who have bad moods and embarrassed in public, who pay more attention to our kidneys than our own needs. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding and an endless supply of forgiveness such as the ironical power of sex. It lures us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need far more, which is sacrificial love. That's the purpose of sex, sacrificial love. And there's pleasure. Sex is fun. It's supposed to be fun. 
Proverbs 5, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. It's supposed to be pleasurable. All all those nerve endings that have no other purpose apart from pleasure within sex. Have you thought that God created that as well? Now, I want to be sensitive here. I'm fully aware that for, for some couples within marriage, sex is more painful than pleasurable. But God's design was pleasure. 1 Corinthians 7 again, the the wife doesn't have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband doesn't have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. There's this mutuality. Don't mishear this. Don't misread this. Your body still belongs to you. It is your body. But within marriage, you yield it to your spouse. You hand it over in a way where you want to please the other person. Sex is not about self-gratification. It's about that selfless other person gratification. Don't deprive each other, verse 5, except perhaps by mutual consent. So you never demand sex, nor do you deprive each other. Please don't use sex as a, as a weapon or a bargaining tool. The only reason to abstain is for prayer, to ensure this deep spiritual connection. And then come together again so Satan won't tempt you. So love, there's pleasure, and there's procreation. Now that command in Genesis 1 verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number. You can't do that without sex. Now I, I, I was thinking that God could have caused reproduction by some other means like touching your fingers. But he chose to reproduce through this deep, unbelievably intimate personal thing called sex. So there's potential for procreation. If we are able, if we are able, procreation is a good thing. And I say, I say if we are able, because it's an incredibly sensitive topic, because not everyone is able. Some people long to have children, but they're beyond childbearing age. Some people long to have children, but they are battling the pain and the heartache of infertility. It is so hard. If that's you, I'm so sorry. Uh, please don't go through that battle alone. Allow others to walk alongside you and carry your burdens. But if we're able, procreation is one of the purposes of sex. So maybe you're here today and you are married and maybe you need to talk to your spouse about intimacy. Maybe you've allowed bitterness or anger or resentment to damage your intimacy. Maybe your constant busyness or exhaustion has damaged your intimacy. Maybe you've slipped into selfish sex or bargaining sex or no sex. We need to pursue intimacy within marriage. But outside of marriage, the expectation is celibacy. I'm very conscious there are many single people in our church, whether never married, divorced or widowed, and I'm conscious that this topic of sex might be difficult to hear. Can I say a few words to the singles? Singleness is not abnormal. You're not incomplete. You're not a second-class citizen because you've chosen celibacy. And celibacy is difficult, but it's not impossible. It is perfectly possible to live a fulfilled, satisfied life as a single celibate person. Speaking as a man who was single and celibate till I was 40, I know it's really hard. 
I know the struggles of lust and loneliness. But I also know some of the joys of being single. And I also know that the Lord is able, is able to empower you and equip you to live a happy, fulfilled, celibate, single life. So whether married or single, let's honor the Lord with our bodies. And that leads me to brokenness, immorality, the, the, the brokenness of sexual immorality. Because here's the question. If sex is so good and it's so beautiful and intimate, why is there so much pain and shame? In a word, it's sin, it's brokenness. It's like we're back in Eden. We think we know better than God. And we take the good desire for intimacy and we twist it into an idol. We take God's good design for sex and we misuse it and abuse it. We pursue the sweetness of sex without the substance of commitment and love. And sexual immorality, it is damaging, it is dangerous. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Flee, run away as far as possible. Ephesians 5, verse 3, not even a hint of sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, avoid sexual immorality. He's saying, don't go, don't go near it, don't flirt with it, because you will lose. You cannot play with fire without eventually getting burned by it. The word for immorality in all those passages is a general word. It's the word porneia. It means all misuses of sex. Adultery, fornication, fantasy, pornography, homosexual behavior, and abuse. All the things that God says are not good, not good for you, not good for others. Now, God isn't a killjoy. God doesn't give you these sexual desires and just say no. No, God is for you, not against you. God loves you and wants the best for you. And God actually knows what's good for us. And it's not just about our feelings. Our culture says if it feels good, just do it. But what feels good might not actually be good for us. And the problem with immorality is that you have this temporary enjoyment but long-term frustration, hollowness, or hurt. I want to talk about two particular areas, pornography and homosexuality. Pornography is a massive issue in our culture and in our church. If the stats are right, one in three men and one in five women in the church are looking at porn. But it's fantasy sex. It objectifies women. It damages relationships. There's a story in the Bible from 2 Samuel 13 of of Amnon, and he fantasized about his half-sister Tamar, and he fantasized her, and he reduced her to this sex object. She was no longer a person. She was no longer his half-sister or his father's daughter. She was just an object of his fantasy. And then one day he decided to act on his fantasy, and he abused her and then discarded her. Now, Amnon didn't have pornography There was no internet, no smartphones, no erotic movies, but it's the same idea, it's fantasy sex. And church, I can't stress enough the the damage and dangers of porn. Gone are the day where you had to leave your home to buy a magazine. Now you just pipe it into your living room, onto your smartphone. It's universally accessible. It's anonymous, it's addictive, and it's abusive. Please don't tell me that porn doesn't harm anyone. It does, it harms you. It's like a drug, it's addictive. 
always seeking a, a, a bigger high. What thrilled you yesterday isn't enough for you today. It rewires your brain. And it's dehumanizing. It reduces sex to nothing more than selfish escape or self-gratification. And it hurts so many people. As I said, it objectifies many women. It destroys marriages. It's been shown that men who are addicted to porn tend to have terrible sex lives within a marriage because your brain has been rewired to think a certain way. Devastating impact on the kids, kids who have been lured into this industry way, way too young. Now, do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? He says, you've heard it says, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who lusts after a woman, who lingers with their looks, who undresses them, has committed adultery. That's the issue with immorality. It starts here in your mind, in your brain. That's the problem with porn. So fill your mind with good stuff, not with junk. It's Philippians 4, whatever is good, pure, noble. Think about those things in the battle of your mind. Don't just get rid of porn, but fill your mind with the good stuff. The light of Jesus Christ, let him drive out the darkness. And be ruthless. Matthew 5 again, Jesus said, if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Not literally, but he's saying, get rid of it. Like a cancer, once you realize it's bad for you, cut it out. Get, it, get rid of it. Church, can I say, get rid of whatever is causing you to look at porn. Don't dabble. Flee, flee, flee. And again, talk to somebody, tell somebody, because sin thrives in secrecy. Looking for a good resource here, Tim Chester's book, Closing the Window, Steps to Living Porn Free, is a great resource. What about homosexuality? What about people who are attracted to the same sex, whether by nature born that way or by nurture made that way? What about people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or queer? What does the Bible say about them? Now, sadly, too often the church is just heard to speak words of hatred and hostility. What would, a, what would Jesus say to a gay person? We know what he would say. He would say, I love you. I love you. I loved you enough to die for you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are an image bearer of God. Does God love gay people? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are gay people sexual sinners? Absolutely. Just like you and I are sexual sinners. Isn't that why Jesus came? For broken people? God loves those who are broken. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Please hear this. God loves the gay person as much as he loves the straight person. What else would Jesus say? He'd say, I won't reject you. I won't reject you. Again, you need to hear this because lots of gay people feel rejected, especially from the church. And there are people growing up in the church and they're grappling with their sexuality. And as they grow up, they realize they are gay. And there's this inner turmoil, this wrestling with their emotions and confusion and fear. And many people experience this pain and rejection from family, friends and the church. But the Lord Jesus is saying, I won't reject you because I love you. What else would Jesus say? He'd say, come and follow me. This is where it gets tricky. He'd say, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus requires sacrifice and obedience. If you love me, he says, obey me. And so whilst being gay is not a sin, 
Same-sex activity is described as a sin in Scripture, just like adultery and fornication and lots of other sins. Now, don't mishear me. The Bible does not say that, that straight sex is good and gay sex is bad. The Bible says that sex within marriage is good and any sex outside of marriage is bad. Lots of different passages we could go to. Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6. For me, the key is Romans 1. Paul says that even women exchange natural relations for unnatural. In the same way, men abandon natural relations with women and women flame with lust for one another. That word natural is not what's natural to you, but natural according to the created order, which is one man and one woman in marriage. And that is really hard to say, but we need to be able to say that without sounding homophobic or hateful. Now, please, again, hear this. Homosexual sin is not the only sin, the biggest sin, the unforgivable sin. It's not that. It's there in the Bible alongside other sins like greed and slander and drunkenness and heterosexual immorality. But if we're claiming to follow Jesus and love Jesus and obey Jesus, then his call is celibacy. And again, I'm sure you're outraged by that. I'm sure there are people screaming at the screens right now saying, Paul, that is impossible, that's unreasonable, that's unloving. It's difficult, it's so difficult. Because we're sexual beings with sexual desires, but to say it's impossible or unreasonable is to ignore the millions of other Christians, single, uh, gay or straight, who are seeking to obey Jesus by chasing celibacy. I love the story in John 8 of the encounter between Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. And the religious leaders are there with their, their stones, their rocks in their hands, ready to condemn her. And we're good at that, aren't we? We're good at condemning the sexually immoral, whether it's a porn addict or the adulterer or the, the gay or the straight person addicted to sex. We're good at, at chucking rocks, condemning them and judging them. And Jesus says, now take the plank out of your own eye. Love them, listen to them, care for them, and then point them to the love and the forgiveness they find in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says to them, go and sin no more, and let Jesus help them with that. I'm really thankful to a, a pastor in the UK who really modeled to me how to befriend those who are sexually immoral that our church often neglects. And he said to me, Paul, one day everyone is broken and they'll hurt and they'll be in pain and they'll feel lonely and they'll pick up the phone to somebody. And I want to be that person that they pick up the phone to so I can shower them with the love of Christ. So don't hate people, love them, love them, love them. There's beauty. Yeah, there's brokenness. But I want to finish with this. There's redeeming, there's redemption, there's redeeming sex. God longs to redeem us and to restore us every part of us. That's our God. He's a God of redemption. He wants to set you free. He wants to liberate you. He wants to get rid of your shame and your guilt and your addictions. That's the heartbeat of God. He says, you're not your own, you bought a price. And that price was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So brother or sister, come to the Lord Jesus. Come and be, be washed and be restored and be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Whatever you have done in the past, whatever you are doing in the present, you can be washed, you can be cleansed, you can be forgiven, you can be healed. Come. 
and experience the, the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. He, he wants to change you. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you whole and healthy. So come. Come to the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're still wrapped with guilt or shame of some sexual past. Well, bring that to Jesus. Let it go. He wants to free you from guilt and free you from shame. It has no hold over you. Maybe you're currently in an ungodly sexual relationship. Well, bring that to Jesus because he he longs to restore and redeem you and satisfy you with something much better. Maybe you're addicted to porn. Don't just get rid of the porn. Get full of Jesus. Come to Jesus. He longs to help you, to heal you, to empower you. May you be your living in a a joyless, sexless marriage. Let Jesus restore that and redeem that. Or maybe just finding it hard to live in a sex-crazed, confused, chaotic world. Church, come to Jesus. He says, come, come, and you'll find rest. You'll find rest for your weary soul.